Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Thank you. You can all be seated. Thanks, Taylor. Good morning, Flourishing Grace. How you doing? Uh, my name is Benjamin. I'm one of the pastors here at Flourishing Grace. Um, Josh Knight, our pastor for Preaching and Vision, is literally halfway around the world with our team uh, in India. We have a team um, through our uh, partner over there, Asha India. Um, just guys are doing amazing things. I know when he gets back, um, he will be sharing a lot about that. Before we dive in, um, I want to highlight something really quickly. In two weeks, um, it doesn't involve this gathering quite a bit, but I want to make sure you know what's going on. Um, in two weeks, we're going to have a, a, sh- a small shift in uh, our gathering times. Our first gathering, the second, this gathering right here, you can you can zone out because nothing will change. Our first gathering, if you sometimes go to the first gathering, will go from 9:15 to 9 a.m. And here's why. Um, You may have noticed coming in here, you may have noticed sometimes it's difficult to find a parking spot. Um, There are a ton of new people here. Like if you feel like, man, I'm the only person here that's new, that is not true, which is why you should come to the newcomer's dinner next week. Um, You may find sometimes when you come in in the lobby, there's just a ton of people. And so um, to to help, especially those who come for the first time, uh, especially those who maybe don't know Jesus and and, and are having the courage to come through a new set of doors on a Sunday morning, um, we're making this shift. So if you sometimes go to the 915, you're like, ah. I don't know if I can do 9 o'clock. Listen, this is something we're doing to serve people who maybe are coming for the first time to make space. At some point in time here at Flourishing Grace, somebody made space for us, and so that's why we're doing this. Uh, We're making space for other people. This is starting in November, not next week, but in November. November 5th, um, that'll start. It'll be 9 o'clock and 11. And if if you didn't even know we had a 9.15 gathering, you can just forget everything I just said. We'll be good to go. Um, we are in James chapter 5. If you would, if you would mark that place in your Bibles there, um, we are going to be there. Uh, open up your app, grab that Bible again, whatever it is, James chapter 5, verse 7. Um, a couple of months ago, this past summer in August, I, um, uh, I celebrated, uh, not really celebrate because I don't think anybody really knew, I just kind of marked the day, 20 years in vocational ministry. And what that means is that um, I've convinced somebody to let me do this for a job in some way or another for the last 20 years. Um, and I've loved it. It's been a blast. And as I've been um, considering this, some of you heard me talk about this, I, I've noticed something about people um, like myself as, as we get older. Um, I did not have this gray hair when I started in ministry. I also didn't have it when I started parenting. So you do the math. I don't know which one it is. But I've noticed this as, as I've known people um, as they've gotten older and, and aged through the dec- decades. Um, one of two things happens. And I'm talking like years and years and years where somebody sometimes will be just like, man, they will, they will love their church, they're around, they're, they're leaders, um, they're generous with their time, they're generous with their, their resources, um, they, they, they seem to love Jesus, and, 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 and you, you know them, you're like, yeah, man, they, they are in, they love their church, but as time goes on, you find that their words get sharper, 
um, their, their, their attitude and outlook um, gets more and more bitter. And, and if we're honest, listen, there's no judgment here. I'm not like questioning somebody's salvation. I'm just telling you what I've noticed. Um, over time, as a follower of Jesus, they end up looking less and less like Jesus. I mean, I mean this happens. I've known people who, um, there's just incredible stories, and, and then years later, it's just like, man, do you, like, what, what happened? Again, no judgment. That may be me in, in 30 years when they don't serve the right ice cream that I want to, a blacksmith ice cream, whatever. So I'm, I'm just letting you know that. And then there's the other side of the spectrum. And, and I want to name that, actually. There's a man in our family's life who passed away in 2018 named Robert Zenor. We knew him as Grandpa Bob. Grandpa Bob was born in 1927, and he lived an extraordinarily ordinary life. Grandpa Bob loved Jesus from an early age, and, and there's so much, like I had the, the, the blessing and, and the opportunity to help edit his memoir and, and even add to a little bit and make sure everything was in there and it was edited the, the, the right way, and there's so much I could tell you about the life of Grandpa Bob, but th- there's just a few things I want to share. He was born in 1927, lived an ordinary life, he was drafted into World War II, but didn't go anywhere because it was right at the end of the war and he never got out of San Diego. Um, he, he raised some kids. He was married. Uh, one of the things I need to tell you about being a parent, um, so he, he married um, a, a wonderful woman. They raised a son and a daughter and raised them into adulthood. Their daughter got married, and in, their, in her first year of marriage at work, one day just suddenly fell to the ground. That was it. She had a stroke. And she was permanently disabled, could not walk, could, could barely communicate, could not feed herself, could not do anything for herself for the rest of her life. Now, there's no judgment here. This is back in, in the 70s, but this husband was extremely overwhelmed. And so Bob and his wife said, okay, listen, we're going we're gonna to care for our daughter Brenda the rest of her life. And, and that was for the next eight years. It changed everything about their life. It changed everything about their hopes and their dreams and what they had wanted for their adult children. And so she passes away, their, their, their son um, has kids, they have grandkids, they finally make it to retirement, and retirement for them was not, hey, let's sit around and play golf, although he did like golf, it was, how can we serve the church? And, and he wanted to, to travel around the country helping out Christian camps, uh, do maintenance and that sort of thing, and shortly into retirement, he lost the love of his life, and, and saw the rest of his life, this retirement, everything they had planned without his wife. Fast forward a few years, and he eventually marries again, another wonderful woman who loves Jesus, and this is how we, we came to know him. Um, his second wife is actually the mom of some of mine and Jennifer's good friends in Ogden. Just a couple of years into that marriage, his second wife develops dementia. It gets to the point where she needs full-time care in a facility, so because her daughter lived up in Utah, they decided to move from Arizona up here to Utah, and he lived in an apartment near a full-time care facility. Let me just give you a small picture of his faithfulness. Um, The whole family was from Arizona, and so her daughter would go back to Arizona with their family and spend Christmas there. And he, there's no way he would. He was invited. There was no way he was going. He's like, I'm not going to let my wife spend Christmas alone. Even to the point, we lived literally blocks away from his apartment and from the care facility when my wife and I, when we lived in Ogden, we said, listen, Bob, just, just come over for Christmas dinner. 45 minutes. Like, we'll time it. We'll sit down right when you get here. You'll enjoy a meal with some kids and some family. He said, no, my wife is not going to be alone on Christmas. I made a promise, and I'm going to fulfill that promise. She eventually passes away, and he decides to live most of the rest of his years up in Ogden because he got to know so many people up here. And for six years, he and I had breakfast every Thursday morning at the Village Inn in South Ogden. 
And on more than one occasion, I would be sent back into the restaurant after breakfast with an envelope full of cash for a waiter or a waitress who was expecting a child and they weren't really sure how they were going to make it work. Nobody knew this. Nobody knew this because Bob lived an extraordinarily ordinary life. Now today, what I want to lay before you as we wrap up this series called Eyes Up, we have been, over the last number of months, walking through what it looks like to wait for Jesus, to, to await the return of Christ, to, to have our eyes on Jesus to the point that we would long for his return, that more than anything else, that we would just simply want to be with him. We've, we've learned what it means to be ready. We've learned what it means to be faithful. We, we've walked through all of these things, and today we are going to, to wrap it up with the answer to this question. Like, So what is next? What about the rest of the years until Jesus comes back again, or if he does not, before I die, until we go back to him? What does that look like? And today, James is going to be honest with us. James is going to be honest with us. Because sometimes life is difficult. Bob's life was not difficult, was not easy at all. It was difficult. It was, it was, there was tragedy. There were things that would have flattened you and I in a moment. And yet he lived faithfully, extraordinarily, in a very ordinary way. Now, you might be saying to me right now, Benjer, listen, I don't know much about preaching, but that story should have gone to the end. Like, surely now the sermon is over. Like, that was inspiring. What, can we just pray and get out? Like, that's a great story. And I get that. But the reason why I put it at the beginning is because I want to lay before us kind of the two options that we have. Because I don't believe that there's a neutral option. Either we walk through the, 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 the remaining years that Jesus has for us on the, this earth, either before he returns again or until we return to him. And we will either become bitter by the circumstances that surround us, by the things that happen, by the inevitable tragedy and difficulties and suffering that happen in our life, or through all of that, through the pain, through the tragedy, through the medical issues, through the illnesses, through the job losses, through the divorces, through the relational issues, through the trauma and through the tragedy, we will keep our eyes on Jesus. Like those are the choices, and that's what I want to lay before us today, and James is going to help us do that. Again, we're going to be in James uh, chapter 5, verse 7. Um, James is a, uh, an interesting letter. James was the half-brother of Jesus. Now, you need to ask yourself before we begin, what would it take to convince you that your brother was the Son of God? Right? Now, during Jesus' lifetime, Jesus' family actually thought he was crazy. Like, uh, they, they, they thought he was out of his mind. They, they were embarrassed of him. And then something happened. Like, what would it take for you to, to be convinced that your brother was the Son of God? Well, Perhaps it has something to do with the fact that he predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off. And so James comes to the point where he has surrendered his life to his brother, his half-brother, Jesus, not as a family member, but as Lord of the universe, as King of kings and Lord of lords. And James was a leader in the church in Jerusalem, where, where there were a lot of um, people who had been Jewish and become Christians. And so James writes this letter to those people and to those who had been kind of dispersed around the area by persecution, who had to, had to move out of Jerusalem all over the known world, which is God's purposes, 
by the way. To them it was suffering, but really what that did is it brought the good news of Jesus around the known world. And so James writes this letter. And James has a number of themes in this letter that, that, that he wants to touch on, but it's not like a 3.5 uh, essay like you learned in ninth grade English where you're going to say what you talked about, we're going to talk about this, 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 and then I'm going to say what I talked about. Now James touches on all of these themes again and again, like he circles around to them, and one of those themes is this theme of suffering, something that, that touches us all, that, that we're all acquainted with. Now, what you need to know is in the first six verses of this chapter, Taylor read from, um, James is kind of railing on these wealthy landowners, in essence um, saying, listen, I know what you're doing. These landowners were getting wealthy off of the labor of, of their workers by either not paying them or paying them too little. Right? James says, men, their, their cries are crying out to God. In other words, God is going to judge you. Now, these landowners were probably outside of the church. They were probably not followers of Jesus. James' purpose in, in writing this was, was to condemn this practice and make sure the people inside the church didn't take part in this practice. And then we get to verse 7 here. And this is how James begins this. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters. That therefore is James saying, listen, you know everything I just talked about? You know these wealthy landowners? You know this, this, this um, taking advantage, this oppression, causing this suffering? He's saying, listen, I know this is happening to you. There we go. I know this is happening to you. I know that you are being oppressed. I know that this is happening to you. And so we're going to talk about how that works out in your life right now. And so James says this, be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters. Oh, great. This is fantastic. James, what are you going to tell me? Um, how am I supposed to do this? How am I supposed to be patient in the midst of this suffering? I don't know how to feed my family. I don't know how I'm going to survive. I have no other options, and this person is just taking advantage of it. Great. How can I be patient? Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Did I, did I read that right? James, are you serious? Be patient until the coming of the, like, like the, the, the second coming of Jesus, like the coming of the Lord? Like, what are you talking about here? Now, James isn't being sarcastic, like, well, I guess you just got to wait till Jesus comes back again. James uses a very particular um, phrase here. It's a technical term that was known by the early Christians that, that the coming of, the, of Jesus would be the coming of the King of kings and the Lord of lords to judge the earth. It's everything that we've talked about over the last number of weeks. Now, I don't know about you, but this is hard for me. Because my capacity for patience and suffering is limited to when I know that suffering is going to end. All right, let me give you an example. Last week, um, my wife Jennifer, she went on a trip a ministry conference, to a ministry conference in Nashville uh, with some other folks here at uh, Flourishing Grace. It was awesome. And as usually happens, when mom goes out of town for a few days, um, somebody got sick. This time, that somebody was me. Now, I'm not always the greatest patient, but I can say, in this instance, I powered through. Like, we had five kids, uh, we got to get them everywhere, I'm not feeling well, but the only reason I was able to do that is because I knew Wednesday night mom was coming home. 
Like, okay, I can do this today. I can do this tomorrow. That is it. My capacity for patience and suffering is limited to me knowing when that circumstance that I don't like is going to end, when that circumstance that is giving me trouble, when that pain is going to stop. That, I mean, like, I'm just being honest with you. Maybe you're in the same boat. And James says, no, 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 no. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. And, and again, he's not being flippant. I, I just... I just want us to notice something here. And I don't think this is a main point, but James says this. Like, can we just be honest that there's suffering and then there's suffering? Like, I don't want to belittle anybody's suffering. All suffering is suffering and it's difficult. But there are things that happened to me when I was 22 years old that I thought was the end of the world and I forgot about two weeks later. All right? I mean, that's just, that's just being honest. But then there's suffering. And James says sometimes this kind of suffering can only be made right by the return of the Lord of Lords and King of Kings to come and judge the earth. I know what is happening. I know only Jesus can fix this suffering. In other words, James says this. The source of our patience is the return of Jesus. My capacity for patience sometimes limited only to me knowing when this pain is going to end, when this suffering is going to end. But the source of our patience, James says, is the return of Jesus. Everything we have talked about over the last number of weeks, that we keep our eyes up, that we keep our eyes on Jesus. I'm going to be honest. Like If you're here and you don't know Jesus, I'm, I'm glad that you're here. And this is a place to ask questions. This is a place to be welcomed. This is a place uh, where, where, where hopefully you can feel like family and wrestle through some of these things in real time. But I just got to be honest with you. Like, this doesn't make any sense unless Jesus really is the King of Kings who hung on the cross for your sin and my sin and then rose again from the dead three days later and who one day is coming back again to judge the earth. It really doesn't. So we're going to walk through what really this looks like. Because I don't know about you, when I tell my kids, hey, just be patient, that doesn't help. That doesn't help. Just say, hey, be patient. That's just not, not what they like to hear, and maybe it's not what you like to hear either. But it's not my fault. James said it, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through really quickly what that looks like through a few illustrations that James gives. The first one is this, again, in verse 7. He says this. Okay, let me give you some examples. First one, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, there's that word, until it receives the early and late rains. Now, not about you. Maybe you're like me. I, I buy my fruits and veggies. Excuse me. Jennifer buys our fruits and veggies at the grocery store. I have very little knowledge, even though I come from a farming family in Iowa, I have very little knowledge about what this means. I have very little conception in my mind, the ability to conceive this idea that my well-being, that my job, that my ability to feed my family is dependent on the rains coming. You see, the early and late rains that James is referring to is the fall rain in first century Palestine and the spring rain. The fall rain was the first rain. You couldn't plant without that first rain. Like you just, it just had to be there. There's no amount of irrigation that could be done if that first rain didn't show up. And if it didn't show up, you weren't planting. And then, if that all goes well, you got to wait and everything grows. And before the harvest can happen, you need to have the, the spring rains, the late rains. You need, to, you need to let it rain so it can finish growing. And if it doesn't, there's no harvest. And I love what James says here. James doesn't say, consider the farmer and how hard he works. He doesn't say, consider the farmer and how smart he is in his techniques. He doesn't say, consider the farmer and how much he prays. 
He just waits. Now, does it, they know. Like, they're not stupid. James' readers aren't, isn't, aren't stupid. We're not dumb. We know that the farmer is working. But James doesn't put the emphasis on that. Right? This isn't like, okay, you do part, and then God's going to do the rest. No, this is all about the faithfulness and grace of God. This idea of, of early and late rains was tied to the faithfulness of God. If you go back to the Old Testament, James's readers knew this. They knew the prophets. They knew the Hebrew Bible. And they go back, this idea of the early and late rains was tied to the faithfulness of God. If you go to Joel chapter 2, it'll be up here on the screen, uh, chapter 2, verse 23, I believe, yes, um, he, Joel is talking about God's faithfulness, in the, even though Israel had completely just uh, been disobedient and said, I don't need you, God. We don't need you. Well, you you're, this, isn't, this, this isn't something that we need. We're not going to follow you. And talking about God's faithfulness and how God will return them and said, no matter how unfaithful you are, God says, I will continue to be faithful. And this is how he expresses it in Joel chapter 22. Be up here on the screen. Be glad, O children of Zion, the people of Israel, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, and the early and latter rain as before. In other words, what he's talking about is like, listen, this is how faithful God is. He will provide the early and the late rain. Now what we need to know, what James is getting at here, and using this illustration of the farmer, is this. God is doing something. God is doing something. And, and the hard thing is, we don't exactly know what that is. You see, part of trust and trusting somebody is sometimes they're doing something for your good that you don't even know about. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not talking about like, okay, one day God's going to just remove all these circumstances and in this life you're going to have health, wealth, and everything's going to be great. No, that's not what James is talking about. He's talking about, listen, God is doing his thing. And you don't necessarily get a say in what that thing is. Is. I'm sure the farmer would have loved modern irrigation techniques. I'm sure he would have loved some reservoirs. I'm sure he would have loved to be able to move somewhere else where he didn't need the early and late rains. But no, the farmer simply waited. He was patient. He was steadfast, which is another word for endurance. God is doing something. And as we wait for Jesus, as we are in the midst of suffering, and being patient until the coming of the Lord. Part of what that means is, listen, God is doing something. And we are patient, not because we are anything, but because God is everything. It's not easy. It's not easy to not know. But this is what James tells us. The next thing James tells us is this. Don't be derailed by suffering. And here's what I mean by that. So, in verse 9, James says this. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, James, on one level, uh, uh, he probably has a little bit of this in mind. We know that when we are suffering and things are difficult, um, those closest to us are those who pay the price, right? 
But that's not just the heart of what James is getting. He's not talking about, hey, don't grumble against your loved ones just because your day isn't going well. No, James uses very specific language here. First of all, he says grumble. Right? Grumble should hearken us back to the people of Israel who are wandering around in the wilderness, who when, when things were not going well, when God who had rescued them out of slavery, who had rescued them through the Red Sea, I mean, just all these miraculous things, when they got to a day when things were hard and the food wasn't what they wanted them to be, they grumbled against God. They said, God, you brought us out here to kill us. You didn't bring us out here to save us. You brought us out here to kill us. And then they grumbled against the leaders, and then they grumbled against one another. They Basically, they were saying that God cannot be trusted. And then James says, listen, the judge is standing at the door. Remember, James, in the first six verses of this chapter, talked about the wealthy landowners. I mean, they will be judged. The judge is standing at the door for them. Uh, the, the, the voices of the laborers are crying out from the ground, like God will take care of them. And what James is saying is, listen, If you do the same thing, if you let suffering derail you so that you, you grumble and you mistreat those around you, you are no better than the landowners. God's there for you too, as judge. Sometimes I think we can take this victim mentality. And don't get me wrong, sometimes we are victims. There are people in this room who have experienced trauma to the extent where I could probably not believe your story. But sometimes... We believe that we get a pass from everything because what has been done to us. And James says, no, 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 no. Don't let suffering derail you. Now remember, he's talking about this not because we are anything, but because Jesus is everything. Because Jesus, the judge of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is coming back and he has dealt with all sin. All sin in the world will either be dealt with by being forgiven on the cross or the last judgment. We can get to a point where suffering can derail us. And I think this is what happens to some people later in life because we all experience suffering. I am convinced, I am convinced, I could be wrong. I could live another 40 years and be completely proven wrong, but I am convinced that who we are, if God should give us 70 or 80 years, who we are at 70 or 80 depends largely on how we deal with suffering in our relationship with Jesus. That's just what I think it is. Now, last thing, we can suffer well because of who God is. Now, this is hard for us. Uh, can, I, can I pick on us? If you're, if you're born in this country and you were raised as a follower of Jesus in this country, we are not good at suffering well. We have no category for suffering well. Even if we don't say it out loud, there's a part of us that believes that if we do what God wants us to do, then God's going to do what should happen to us, that the thing, our circumstances will be better. And that if our circumstances aren't good, it must be because we're not faithful enough. And that has no place, that has no place in a theology of suffering. We can suffer well because of who God is. James uses a couple of examples here. First, prophets. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. And there's another word for steadfast here is who endured. Friends, I love that he uses the examples of the prophets. Now, now the readers of James, as, 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 as they're listening to this or reading this or whatever it may be, they're nodding their head at this point, right? Because they know the prophets. They know that the prophets faithfully proclaimed who God is and, and his forgiveness and his judgment, and they were mistreated. And they're like, yeah, we're mistreated too. And they nodded their heads. 
They got this. And I, I love that he includes this because I think what this teaches us, uh, among other things, is that we can be directly in the middle of the will of God. We can be being obedient to what he's asking us to do. We can be right in the middle of the will of God and still be suffering. And we can suffer all because of who God is. They were proclaiming the promises and the goodness of God. And that is why they could endure. Not because they were anything, but because God was everything. And then he turns to Job. Verse 11, Behold, excuse me, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. At this point, at this point, James's hearers may have been, really? Like, if you're going to lead a prayer seminar, you're probably not going to choose the book of Job. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Job, first of all, let me tell you this. If, you've got questions, if you think you've got questions about God now, go home this afternoon, look up the book of Job. It's in the Old Testament. Pull it up on an app. Once you read that, you're going to have more questions than you do now. Let me just tell you how to. Like, Job is a crazy book. Just a quick overview. We can't get too much into it. But basically, there's this conversation between God and Satan. It's very clear that God is in control. Like, there's not this equality between God and Satan at all. It is God who is in control, but Satan says, listen, Job says he loves you, but he only loves you because you've, given, you've blessed him in his life. And so God says, okay. And he lets Satan take away his, his wealth, he lets Satan take away his family, and he lets Satan take away his health. And he says, see what he does now. And the rest of the book of Job, I mean, I told you, this is crazy. Many of you have so many questions right now. I get that. Keep reading. It's so crazy because the rest of the book of Job is Job wrestling through this with his friends and his friends arguing against him and Job's at times saying, man, I wish I was never born, cursed the day that I was ever conceived. And eventually at the end of the book, Job has a chance to accuse God and he accuses God for everything that's been done to him because Job doesn't get to see everything that's been done. This is nuts. Um, Josh Gardner and I were talking about this this week, and uh, he pointed me to uh, Tim Keller. Tim Keller is an incredible pastor uh, who passed away a couple of uh, months ago, uh, was a pastor in New York, planted a church. And he was talking one time about his Old Testament professor, uh, how his Old Testament professor had this theory about, this, about Job. You see, at the end of the book of Job, Job would never lead a prayer kind of seminar in our church. Like, like it is raw, it is crazy, he accuses God, he kicks, he screams, it is nuts. And this Old Testament professor said, man, I have a theory about this. Because at the end of the book, Job was commended, was honored above his friends as companions for his prayers. And the Old Testament said the reason why he was honored above his friends for his prayers is because they were prayers. Like God never let go of Job, even through all of that. And Job clung to God, even when it was kicking and screaming and he had questions and he was angry. I believe why James includes Job in this is because through all this immense suffering. Job never let go of the compassion and mercy of God. And this is hard for us. Friends, there are people in this room who are walking through things. And you, because of what you have experienced or are experiencing now, will walk with a limp the rest of your life. The circumstances will never be taken away. The memory of that suffering or the effects of that suffering, this side of heaven, I believe in the healing of God. I believe in reconciliation. I believe in restoration. But God has not seen fit that all suffering, this side of heaven, will be wiped out. And so we've got to figure out, what do we do with that? 
So as we come to the end of this series, I want us to listen to James. James says, be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. So what are we supposed to do with all this? Um, I, I wish I had, like, a great list, three points, do these things, and it will get better, but I don't. All I have is to come back to where we started and lay before you Grandpa Bob, who lived an extraordinarily ordinary life, who through tragedy, through difficulty, through dreams being cast aside, through wondering, God, why are you doing, like, why would you do this? Why would you do this? He kept his eyes on Jesus. That's what we've been invited to do, to keep our eyes up. There's no easy answer for this. There's no easy way through this. There are times where it would be difficult to even step out of bed, keep our eyes up, and consider who Jesus is because of the suffering that is happening in our lives now. But this is what James is calling us to. This is what God wants for our life. You see, the victorious life isn't that all of our experiences and all of our circumstances all of a sudden get better. The victorious life is clinging on to Jesus when there is nothing left to cling on. That is what we are called to today. Here's how we're going to finish today. Um, I'm going to pray in a moment. Uh, I'm going to invite our uh, prayer ministers to come up. We've got a prayer team. And what we're going to do is, I'm, before we sing our last song, uh, I want to leave a couple of minutes of space. I think sometimes when, when we, we think about it or we talk about the return of Christ, like so many times we've been sold this idea that if we just pray enough, if we, if we just consider Jesus enough, we start our Bible enough, we attend church enough, like everything's going to be better than it was. Now don't get me wrong. In my marriage as a parent, all of those things are better because of who Jesus is, but it's not because he has magically changed anything around me. Not because he's magically changed any circumstances, but because of what he's doing in so we're going to create space. If, if something has um, just, just pricked your heart today, if you are in the midst of this suffering, you're suffering and you're not sure how to move forward, and you're not sure how to look to Christ, we'll have people up here who would love to pray with you and pray for you. We're going to leave a couple of minutes of space for that, and then we're going to sing our last song. So let me pray for us. God, There are days when I am not sure how to do this. There are days when the pain that those around me are experiencing, the pain that I am experiencing, it makes it hard to look to the return of your son, Jesus. So God, I pray that you would help us in this space of time between the promise of Christ's return and his return or us returning to him Father, I pray that in that space you would help us to live ordinary, extraordinary lives where each day we would simply look to your son Jesus and say, where to next today? How do I follow you today? How do I keep my eyes on you today? Whether it's in joy or in pain, Jesus, you are all we have. So in these moments, Father, would you help us to experience your presence through your Holy Spirit? 
would we be reminded that in this space between now and when Jesus returns, all, all suffering is known to you. And Father, that the source of our patience through that suffering is Jesus himself. God, would you remind us of that today? We pray these things in his name. Let all the people say, amen.